does it take to become successful? And what does our education have to do with it? Welcome back to the podcast that asks the question that every state-educated student dreads. This is What School Did You Go To? Presented by the 93% Club. And I'm your host, Sophie Pender. This week, we have a very exciting guest. We have the incredible Matt Barber, whose career has not only spanned many countries, but also many TV screens. Matt is a former television presenter and journalist, best known for his work with Channel 5 and ITV, where he covered some of the world's biggest news stories, which include the time where he embedded himself in the British Army in Afghanistan. Matt is now a partner at Freud's, one of the leading PR and strategic communications agencies. Matt, welcome. What a welcome. <laughs> you are wow. on the wrong side of the of the interviewing seat. I know. And the uh, you know, after all that intro and um it makes you think, where's the time gone? Did I really do that stuff? Yeah, here I am in perhaps one of the least comfortable places, which is the <laughs> other side of the interview, the one answering the questions and not asking them. Well, it's a good it's a good podcast to start on, isn't it? Oh, I, I, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here, Sophie. And honestly, I, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. I'm really good. So are we. It. Love having a chat with you. Oh, me too. Okay, so we're going to start the podcast with a question that we ask everyone: What did you want to be when you were younger, and why? I think, like a lot of kids, I wanted to be lots of things, depending on when you asked me. And I think the earliest memory I have is probably wanting to play for Liverpool Football Club because in the 80s, when I was growing up which people will suddenly age me by that admission. Liverpool were the preeminent football club, the most successful. Ian Rush was their star striker. He was from North Wales, like I was from North Wales. And so I wanted to play for Liverpool. It took a while before I probably realised that actually I wanted to get into working in the media, which is a, a phrase I advise people not to say right now, because what does working <laughs> in the media actually mean? It can mean so many different things. Truth be told, I was, as a teenager, a complete tele addict. I lived in North Wales. The countryside, I realise now, was stunning, and yeah, I loved being in it. But back then, I was a couch potato. I didn't want to go out <laughs> on walks with my mum and dad. I wanted to sit and watch Going Live or whatever it happened to be. And actually, there were a couple of programmes I watched back then that were brilliant and would still be brilliant now. And there was a, there was a show on TV when I was a teenager called Reportage. Mm. And it was a news program, but it was a news program for younger people. It was like a youth news program. And it was unusual for two reasons. It didn't really have presenters, it, but it made the most of reporters out in the world telling stories. And not your typical BBC news type reporters, but younger people going and seeing what's going on. And that really got me thinking about storytelling and being where it's happening and how do I do this? Um, and so that was probably the seed of wanting to do what I went on to do eventually. Well, that's a, that's a perfect segue to take us back to North Wales. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What was it like when you were younger? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it's funny, isn't it? I grew up entirely in North Wales and I was educated in South Wales as well because I went, went on to university in, in Cardiff. And most people listening to this are probably thinking, you're kidding. It doesn't really sound particularly Welsh. Um, and I think that's probably because I had English born parents. My mum and dad met in Chester 
just across the border from where I grew up. And I grew up in a little village called Kilken, which I think it has a population of about a thousand. Very rural, lots of young farmers around, one pub, one shop, one bus a day to the nearest shopping town. And I went to the local primary school, which is called Uskol of Oil. Uskol is the Welsh word for school. And by the time I finished primary school, there was only me and one other girl in my final year. It was that small an upbringing. And in some ways it was a idyllic because it was rural and my brother and I, who's two years younger than me, would be out messing around and firing catapults at passing cars and riding motorbikes and just <laughs> messing around. And I, it, it, I didn't face much hardship. I had a reasonably comfortable upbringing. Mm. My dad had a reasonably good job managing a local estate agency. But by the same token, and this is kind of interesting, both, both my mum and dad went to boarding schools mm. and both hated it a lot. My mum went because my grandfather was in the army and traveling around the world. He was in the army for 30 years. And so had to go to boarding school, really. And, you know, short of going to school in Kenya or or Aden or uh, places, Germany or places like that. So she went to boarding school in Eastbourne, didn't really like it. She got on with it, but didn't really like it. My dad went to um, a really unpleasant Catholic all-boys boarding school run by priests mm. in Staffordshire. And it was a brutal existence. And he pleaded with my grandparents at about the age of 11 to take him out of it. He went to boarding mm. school at seven which as a father now, I can't imagine kids going, yeah, crazy. going away at that age. So their reaction to that was sending my brother and me to local state primary, local state comprehensive. And that state comprehensive was a school in a town called Mould, which Mould's a fine place, but it kind of lives up to the name a little bit. And it's not the most dynamic town in the world. Uh, and my school was called Mould Allen High School. And it was a comprehensive, had a sixth form, um, and really, it's, it's funny that you, you reflect on going to school and there are a couple of teachers who stand out for good reasons. I'm never particularly good at maths, but my maths teacher was great. Miss Evans. Mm. We'll never forget her because she just had the right attitude. And they had a media studies A-level there that I did when media studies was not the sort of um, subject of mockery like it went on to become. And the media studies teacher was a guy called Mr. Ashton who really got me interested in all forms of journalism from magazine to newspapers to to broadcast and so that was just fortuitous that he was really passionate about all this stuff and that fired my imagination too so you've you've answered the question that we we usually ask the guests Sorry. which is there you go problem is i can talk too much <laughs> which is what school did you go to so tell us a little bit about what your school was like it was a big school a mm. big comprehensive um and Mould Allen itself was an English-speaking school because in Wales there are also Welsh-speaking um, primary and secondary schools. And it was on a campus with a Welsh-speaking secondary school. So combined, there was a campus of 2,500 children. So it was huge. One of the biggest, I think, school campuses in the whole of Wales. And you can imagine what the um, tension is like between two schools next door to each other, one mm. speaking Welsh, one speaking English. There were quite a lot of scraps uh, where the two schools met. So was the Welsh school comprehensive as well? The Welsh schools are comprehensive too. Yeah, right, abso okay, absolutely. Fine. And um, and there was a not. I mean, 
not seriously, but there was, you know, a bit of sort of school animosity between the mm. two and there'd be, you know, fights and tension, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I grew up watching a show called Grange Hill on TV and it was a bit, it was a bit like Grange Hill. I do Hill. know, I do know what Grange Yeah, is. yeah, sorry, I have to, have to check my cultural references. Um, but it was a bit like that. And uh, I used to get the bus to school with mates and all that mm. sort of bad behaviour would happen on the bus at the back of the bus. And it was across the board in terms of where kids had come from. You know, it, I suppose on the spec on the wider spectrum of my upbringing, it was it was dead in the middle, really. In the spectrum of the school I went to, I was one of the more privileged kids, to be honest. And there were kids from pretty rough backgrounds. And I went to school with kids who went on to Oxford and Cambridge and school with kids who went to prison. And so it was a really broad experience. And I perhaps didn't appreciate it at the time, but certainly looking back now, I like how it's shaped me. I like how you would learn to deal with people from all walks of life and all backgrounds. I'm not going to pretend in North Wales in the 80s and 90s it was massively diverse. It wasn't. It was in terms of socioeconomic background. It certainly wasn't in terms of other kinds of background. Um, and having... And we're sitting here in Hackney, funnily enough now. I lived in Hackney for a long time and diversity and difference became my norm. And I'm glad it did, but it certainly wasn't the norm that I experienced in my upbringing. So, yeah, an interesting school, not not hugely successful, but actually I benefited from having a good sixth form. Mm. I went on to fail one of my A-levels, which is a... We've all been there. <laughs> have you? Have you been there, really? I did, yeah. No. I, I did. I... Fail's not the right word, but I had a pretty rough time, which I won't go into, during my AS levels. And okay. I, I wanted to study English and I tanked mm. my AS level exam. So I had to resit it in the second year. So yeah, I've been, I've been there. It's awful. I, I, at the time, it was awful. I, I, was, I was bang average in my GCSEs and because I was a little bit lazy. And now if I was making excuses, I'd probably say I was uninspired at school. There was definitely an element of that. It wasn't a high achieving school. It wasn't one of those, in some ways, achievement. Well, I love primary school and I learned a lot of primary school. I went to secondary school and achievement was not celebrated. Mm. And so to get on in, in secondary school with some kids who would take you down a peg or two, if you put your hand up in class, you'd stop putting your hand up. Yeah. And so, and I was bullied a bit because I, li I liked learning. But after the first year or what would be year seven now, I stopped putting my hand up. You know, I loved learning languages. I learned, you have to learn Welsh to the age of 14 in Wales, or at least you did when I was at school. I loved learning French and I was really doing well in my first year at secondary school, but I would get picked on for doing that. And so that that ended up affecting my education and my my GCSEs were pretty average. I got one A, three Bs, five Cs and a D. If I, I got a D in physics, never particularly scientifically minded. But I still managed to get on and do A-levels. And I did history, geography, and media studies. Again, when three A-levels was the norm. And I can't believe people these days do four, five, and six. <laughs> it just fills me with dread. And yeah, and I failed history. And I thought I was going to have to resit. But such was the strength of the sixth form I've been through. And the head of sixth form he had a great relationship with Cardiff University. And managed to, through clearing, get a place at Cardiff to do language and communication studies. It wasn't quite the media studies I wanted to do. I really wanted to go to Leeds, which had a mm. great course at the time. The Russell Group wasn't kind of a thing then, but I knew what kind of level of place I wanted. I aspired to go. And so I thought I was going to have to reset A-levels and then try again the next year. But actually, he helped 
get me into one of those places because I'd done some other extracurricular stuff that counted in my favour. So I was I was lucky, really lucky. That's really fascinating that you mention the fact that at school it was embarrassing to do well. And yeah. I remember that I remember that so much. I I was part of a big girl group, and so I was never I was never bullied or picked on. But it was always the case that there was always a running joke that I was sort of the the boffin of the group. Mm. And in my school, it was the people who got bullied were the people who were very bright mm. and the people who were engaged. And one of the biggest culture shifts that I had to deal with, and I'm not sure whether you experienced this as well, mm. is, is going to university and then going to law school and realizing that actually... In other schools, it's the other way around. If you are underperforming, you are the subject of humiliation. And a lot of my friends now say that they found it really embarrassing mm. if they weren't top of the class. Mm. So it's it's completely fascinating to me that it's almost the complete inverse, mm. depending on what type of school you go to. Mm. So you've gone to Cardiff. Mm. What was that like? What was your what was your first week like at Cardiff? Cardiff was a bit of a reawakening, really, because without I mean, I'm 46 now, so what happened when I was 10 or 11 is, is a long time ago. I was actually pegged as a gifted child when I was in primary school, and I was sent off to extracurricular things, and the, the local the local um, education authority did that. So the fact that my secondary school didn't enable me to grow in that way is, is, is exactly because of the reason you've described, in that they let the kids dictate what success looked like, not the teacher's. And so going to Cardiff, finally getting there, I went, through, I went through clearing to get to Cardiff. So got a place literally two weeks before term started and they didn't have a place for me to stay. And so they, what they did have was a sports hall with 40 camp beds in it. And for people coming through clearing and it was, it was um, separated by gender. So I was in a room with 40 other lads of varying ages, like 18 upwards, but there were a couple of postgrads there. Um, and that was my introduction to university. I was thinking, this isn't quite what I had in mind. On a camp bed. <laughs> On a camp bed in a room with other guys. Some were crying themselves asleep at night. Sounds well, like the army potentially. It was, it was, it was brutal. One guy was calling out for his mum at night and we never saw him again. I mean, it was horrible. <laughs> there was another guy. and this if, he, is... <laughs> if he's listening, identify yourself. <laughs> no, but you okay? I mean, absolutely traumatised by the experience. And there was another guy who, because he was a rugby player, had come from Samoa to study in Wales because obviously, you know, Wales is like, yeah. you know, rugby heartland. And I think he was looking around going, what on earth is this? This is not what I expected. So it was quite a, an eye-opening experience. But I, I stuck it out. This was September, October 1994 and made some friends. And after the first week, we clubbed together and said, we're just going to get a house. We're not going to wait to go in, in halls of residence. We're just going to get a house together and get stuck in. I think my parents were horrified that I was having this experience. And of course, that time of the year, the only houses left on the student housing market were the absolute dregs. And we got this house where the windows were about to fall out. There was a hole in the shower room floor. You could see the lounge below. Uh, it was a death trap. <laughs> it was a death trap, but it was, you know, it was good. And then that's, it, that's student housing. <laughs> that was student housing in the sort of 90s in Cardiff. And um, But educationally, I say it was a reawakening because like you described, mm -hmm. there were people there who celebrated learning and education. And I fell in with a group of friends who were really go-getting and revising and working hard and reading was just their norm 
in a way that I'd sort of shied away from. And um, yeah, I, I knuckled down a bit. I ended up getting a 2-1. So I sort of, you know, made some amends from my previous underachievements. And I, and I really enjoyed it. And I met my wife at Cardiff, as it happens, who she had a state education, but she went to an all-girls grammar school in Kent, mm. which you couldn't buy that kind of education. She did brilliantly. And actually, she had the different kind of problems where if you weren't achieving then you were considered you know inferior in some way and so she was on a fast track to oxbridge decided she didn't want to go decided to take a year out go to france and then she went to cardiff and then we that's where we met so so cardiff i i loved it it's a great city um but it was very different to my school indefinitely so then you you left wales and you went to london was was London, the place where you got your first job? No, it wasn't. It was in Cardiff. And I it oh. was I was about the age of 19. It was the first or second university. I can't quite remember why. And someone set up a student radio station, which is still going now. It's called Express. It's not a great name. And I thought I'm going to have a go at that. I'd done the student newspaper, really enjoyed that, telling stories and doing reviews and this kind of thing. And a friend of mine uh, got together with me and we did a show on student radio called Young Scene which is named yes. after a particularly naff piece of music we uncovered. And and I loved it. As you can tell now, I love being on mic. I love chatting. Um, you know, talk about me is my favorite subject. I'm an expert in it. Um, but really, I, just, I, I love the performance element of it. I love the fact that people are listening to what you had to say. I also love the sort of self-editing element of it. You can't really pontificate forever because people will get bored so just recognizing what were what didn't and i thought this is this is kind of where i want to go to for a job and just by luck and not by design cardiff has a really great journalism school in my opinion it has the best journalism school in the country there are a couple of others that are really good city in london bournemouth does does some stuff as well preston falmouth but cardiff was the preeminent and it just so happened i was there as an undergraduate which was completely fortuitous at this point in time weirdly my mum and dad had moved to the far north of scotland for a period of time and i went up to there to live with them for a bit while i figured out what i was going to do with my year off and eventually i went traveling i went to live with a, a girlfriend at the time um but while i was living with them i signed on the dole in uh, a town called dingwall which is way north and it's where a lot of seasonal oil rig workers sign on in fact mm. that was there was that they were all the people who were signing on the dole and you know, I bet they were confused by you. Well, so I wander in, <laughs> sounding like I sound. I mean, I when I go back home, I sound a bit more like a scouser, less less so when I'm, I've been living in the south for too long. I walk in with my accent. They're all Scottish. Queue of oil rig workers ahead of me, and I sit down. And the the woman, the cancer, said, "What do you want to do?" I said, "I'd like to work in broadcasting." And she looked at me. She looks around and goes, "I, I mean, we're in Dingwall here. I suppose you could try for the." you know, in Inverness at the BBC. And she just looked at me like, this guy's crazy. Sign here and take your doll check and off you, off you go. Um, but that's what I wanted to do. And I applied and went back to Cardiff and actually going back there prior to that, I got some work experience back where I grew up on a local radio station. And that was what really got the ball rolling. And I worked at a station in Cardiff when I was studying there called Red Dragon. But I would get up, all my peers studying broadcast journalism would enjoy the weekends. I would get up every Saturday, four in the morning, go in, and I would do the early morning bulletins. And that's that's 
that's kind of what it took because I knew experience mm. was key. You had to show willing, you had to show enthusiasm. And I really enjoyed it. And um, I would re- I would read the news on a show, breakfast show presented by a guy called, I think his name was, his name was something Morgan, Steve Morgan or John Morgan. And I remember vividly because he would start a show going, you're listening to Red Dragon Breakfast with me, Steve Morgan, big M, small organ. <laughs> and that was his intro every time. And I was like, it's kind of funny the first time, but the fifth time you hear it, it's like, okay, Steve, that's, you know. Not sure. There's stop no, it now, Steve. Stop it, Steve. Stop, <laughs> stop talking about your organ, Steve. <laughs> so, Matt, what was your, you've had an insane career. What was your big break? What was the moment that you thought, oh my God, have I, have I just made it? Oh, yeah, you know, when, it, when it's you doing it, it doesn't feel like an insane career. And I look around and look at other people who've achieved so much more. And I think it doesn't, it doesn't bear up to what, what they've done. But it's nice to sort of look back at it and go, yeah, I've done some interesting stuff. Definitely. You went to Afghanistan. You you went to Haiti as well. I did. What was it like for you to to go from North Wales mm. to London to then to be in in amongst some of the most impressive people in the world that like you've mixed in some crazy circles. Yeah. You know, when I was at the BBC in the mid 2000s then I went to work on a Channel 5 trying to get as much experience of as many different things as possible and that ended up being politics and general elections and yeah i was embedded in afghanistan in in 2009 and went to haiti to cover the earthquake in 2010 and did the oscars and terror attacks and all sorts of stories in the uk there was a guy called canoe man who disappeared and and then turned up in belize and he'd faked his own death and i so cool just because i found i just found and still do find people and what they do and their stories fascinating um, and we know each other a bit, and I find mm. you, I find you fascinating. I find what you're doing in '93 fascinating, and the curiosity has never gone. And so that was, I, I, it was really I had this insatiable curiosity to go and see with my own eyes. You never really know someone unless you meet them in person. You never really know what's going on with the story unless you are there. Very rare that you're on the ground when it's actually happening. Mm. Invariably, you get to something and it's just happened. The war in Afghanistan, yeah, it was going on around me. That was pretty intense. And the Haiti earthquake, it was still, it was unremittingly grim. The thing that stays with you about those things is not necessarily what you see. Although what I saw in Haiti was way worse than anything I saw in Afghanistan. Dead bodies piled up all around the place. The smell because of people stuck under collapsed buildings. I was, you know, knowing the language we know now of post-traumatic stress, I probably experienced a little bit of that because it was so horrific and helpless um but by the same token i cherish the experience and what it how it shaped my view of the world which really is most people the vast majority of people are just trying to get on with their lives look after themselves look after their friends not take from others i think there's i think there's a significant minority of people who kind of ruin it for everybody else really yeah but most people are just trying to do their best and get on and look after their loved ones and provide for their kids and keep the whole show on the road. And I've seen that in Haiti and Afghanistan, you know, after terror attacks. It's amazing when things happen that are really bad, how many other people run to help. Mm. That's the thing that that stays with me. And that's the thing that I think about 93. And that's the thing that talking to you and helping out a little bit, I want to help people. I want to help people not do make the mistakes I made 
ultimately your question is about how did I fit into these places? Because of my mum, primarily, my brother and I kind of blessed with a bit of self-confidence. My my wife finds it really frustrating and that my mum is my biggest fan and biggest cheerleader <laughs> and thinks... Mums of boys. <laughs> yeah, thinks the sun shines out of my behind. But actually, it's set my brother and me up to not feel like um, we were inferior in some way or outsiders or have imposter syndrome. I, of course, I get it. Everybody gets it to a certain degree and it's it's healthy to have a bit of self-awareness. Um, but actually, I never really thought I can't do this because my mum and dad had always said, why can't you do it? Mm. You should do it. Try it. Just just try it out. Thought experiment. What, what will happen? Yeah. And they, it's not like they told us what to do either. Mm. I mean, my brother is not in the least bit academic. He was, he went to the same schools as I did and has really severe dyslexia. And again, in the 80s, 90s, they treated him like he was intellectually challenged, which he is not. He's very bright, but his reading and writing and his numeracy is appalling. So he ended up going to agricultural college. Arguably, he's now more successful than I am. He runs his own business. It's got million, multi-million turnover. He's, I hate him. He's currently on holiday in Hawaii and I'm sitting here, I'm sitting here in Hackney and it's raining. Not that I don't want to be here, but you know, he, he, he's done really, cause he's a grafter. He just mm. works really, really hard and he deserves everything he gets. I'm super proud of him, but it, in some ways it was in spite of school. It was mm. more to do with like, just try it, just go for it. It's the worst that can happen. We've spoken a lot about the idea of being a chameleon. I feel like I feel like I've had this conversation with you more than anyone. Yeah. And I think we have slightly different perspectives on it, which I find really helpful to, to sort of get out of my own thinking about it. Mm. But I when I went to university, my experience and even the workplace was that I felt like I had to change so much about myself. Mm. And I guess your perspective on being a chameleon is slightly different and I think you see it as a bit of a superpower to be able to move through these spaces. <laughs> I think adaptability is a superpower. I think mm. I think the word chameleon probably comes probably can have some negative connotations in that you're not being authentic or true to yourself. You're just a- adapting to the situation for the sake of adapting. I think the way I see it is, of course, different situations require you to bring out different sides of yourself. But we all have different sides. Mm. You know, I advise people now on this kind of stuff. No. People somehow get hung up on the idea of they're not authentic if they're not showing their whole selves. Mm. But no one really leaves the house in the morning without brushing their teeth and looking in the mirror because no one needs to see all that stuff, right? And and so it's absolutely fine to show the best of yourself. So that that's really what I take it to be. Um, and just to sort of think about it, yeah, I mean, I've I've been in Downing Street and I've been in Buckingham Palace and I've walked around um, Highgrove with the King. And I'm not sitting there being the lad from North Wales necessarily because that would make, almost makes it too much about me. I'm adapting to the situation, the audience I'm facing and not not giving up myself completely, not pretending I'm something I, I'm not, but also well, there's no reason I shouldn't be here. Mm. And I suppose that's what I mean by adapting to the situation. And I, you know, I think the difference is as well, I know, full well what you're referring to when you're at university and and the likelihood of some of your peers having come from public school and when you are 18 you you're not you no one really knows himself well enough to not 
want to sort of adapt. Yeah. And it's it's a natural instinctive thing is to to mirror what's in front of you and to to try and fit in in that way. I suppose now I've lived a bit of life and been around the block a few times. I'm, I'm, I'm slightly less You know worried. who you are now. I, I like to think so. Um, but you're less concerned with it. You're less concerned. Go, this is me. I'm comfortable in my own skin. I'm never entirely. I mean, who, who really is? But comfortable enough to say, take me or leave me as you find me. I remember getting a nose piercing at university thinking it would make me more Bristol. And it lasted about two weeks. And then my friends from school visited and they said, what's in your nose? <laughs> and it immediately came out. But there's nothing wrong with trying either, is there? There's nothing <laughs> no. wrong with trying as long as you can say, you know what, maybe it did work, maybe it didn't. Just try these things out and see what happens. And I just want to touch on the going the going back. So another thing we've spoken about is returning to, I guess, where you came from, the place that raised you. How do you find it going back to North Wales? Like, do you do you find it uncomfortable sometimes going back to North Wales, or have your friends from North Wales also followed a similar journey? I.e., they've they've left. It's quite telling that a lot of the, my friends when I was at school don't live there anymore. Mm. It w- wasn't the place to really forge a career. Mm. A lot of people live in North East Wales and will commute to Liverpool or Manchester, and and that kind of thing. But in terms of opportunity my friends were like me in terms of they had to go and find it elsewhere. And some ended up staying where they'd gone to university. A lot of the kids I know who stayed, I occasionally go back in mould and I'll see some of those faces I recognise from school. They'll be working in Tesco's or I had one good friend. The guy I was at school with, who was basically the bully in my year. He did end up in prison as far as I know and didn't see him. But a guy I was friends with, he ended up in prison for a pretty awful crime of being violent towards his girlfriend. He got six years. And um, and I've spoken to him via Facebook and found out what, want, what went on. And I think in some ways growing up there shaped people in a certain way because because of the lack of opportunity, because of, the, you know, it's like a generation where you go to get careers advice and they'd say, you know, some good shop, like good jobs, stacking shelves at Tesco or, you know, like really, there wasn't that ambition or, um, for people. And so it doesn't feel awkward going back there. No, I mean, some of the people I do know back there know who I am and know what I've done. And I'm not, as you can tell, I'm not one of those people to go, well, aren't I wonderful? I, cause I don't really, (laughs) I don't really feel I am. I just feel like, you know, anybody works in news really, who's, who's got a, you know, enough of a check on their own ego realizes it's a team effort. Mm. Those people who are on camera, on screen, have got a massive team behind them. And that's actually the bit that's the most fun is working with the team, not just being the show off on camera or on mic. So I'm not, I don't walk around going the big I am. Far from it. If anything, I've, I've. Moved... <laughs> you go in and say, I am second division. <laughs> well, no, I've just, moved, but I've moved away from that world now. I'm a bit more behind the scenes now. And mm. I'm quite comfortable with that for, because there are, there are different kind of benefits to that. Um, so, yeah, going back to mold, I'm fond of the place, but I, I also know why I left in the first place. And that, yeah, I'll, I won't forget why. So I think that now leads us quite nicely onto our special segment. Here we go. Which is it's a real test. The part of the podcast where we ask the guests to guess whether the celebrity is state or privately educated. Okay. Are you ready for this? I'm game. I think you've got a slight advantage. Oh, really? And if you win, you will win a prize. Mm. I can't tell you what the prize is. Okay. okay? <laughs> All right, good. I'm, I'm up for this. 
going to show you some photos. And you're going to guess. State or privately educated. I have to recognise the people first, don't I? Pressure's on. You'll recognise these people. Okay. Okay, first, we have Kira Knightley. I, I, I'm I, pretty sure I know that Kira Knightley went to a fee-paying school in, I want to say like Wimbledon. I think she grew up in southwest London somewhere. So, yeah, fee-paying school. Are you not going to tell me the answers? I'll tell you at the end. Okay, all right. Pressure. Tom Hardy. That is a that is a tricky one because Tom Hardy has played some rough old characters. I mean, you shouldn't you should never judge a book by its cover or an actor by their um, roles. Yeah, he's I, played played quite a lot of working class characters. He has, he has, mm. but he's played Bane in Batman with a crazy voice of his. Mm. I, I think I mean I think Tom Hardy's a fabulous actor. Uh, I want to say Tom Hardy went to state school. We have. 007, Daniel Craig. As was. State or privately educated? Uh, definitely for me, state school. And there's a reason for this is that despite I grew up in North Wales, England is not too far away from where I grew up. And I was actually born in Chester, which is where my both my parents met, as was Daniel Craig. So I know he's a Cestrian. He's a massive, <laughs> a massive Liverpool fan as well. So all, all loads of reasons for him being the greatest Bond of all time. So state, state school for state school uh, Daniel Craig. And then we have... Eddie Redmayne. Hands down, old Etonian. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure I know Eddie Redmayne went to Eton, so he's public school. But it, it, this is and this is not an either-or choice, is it? But I, I think Eddie Redmayne's amazing as well. I love his work. So we're going we're going Etonian. Yes, we're going yeah? to fee paying school for Eddie Redmayne, yeah. And then the last one, Emma Thompson. Wow. Is Emma Thompson state or privately educated? So Emma Thompson, I think like her, her dad was like, her dad created the Magic Roundabout, which was like a show on in the 60s and 70s. And so probably been fairly successful with that. But I'm going to, I think Emma Thompson probably went, I'm going to say state school for Emma Thompson, actually. State school? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to tell you whether you're right. Okay. So first we had Kira Knightley. Yeah. You said privately educated. I did. Kira Knightley is in fact state educated. Wow. Okay. Why do I, see, this is awful. This, right? The prejudice. Uh-huh. Tom Hardy, yeah, as you said, played a lot of working class characters. You said state educated. It's wrong, isn't it? I've got it wrong. Tom Hardy is privately educated. What a great I actor. I know. I know. A very good actor. Yeah. Daniel Craig, you said state school. I, I think I think you've you've done a deep dive into Daniel Craig. <laughs> I'm a fan, what can I say? Daniel Craig is is, is state educated. You're right about that. Yeah. And Eddie Redmayne is of course an Etonian, yeah. very much privately educated. Yeah. And then finally we have the wonderful Emma Thompson, who is, of course, state educated. She is. Yeah. Okay. So you did pretty well. I think that was was that three out of five? I think it was three out of five. And I think but we we know that that kids who go to fee paying school do get a leg up in lots of different ways. A lot of it mm. confidence and network and all those kind of things. But that shouldn't necessarily define them. Mm. as it hasn't for Tom Hardy, necessarily. And in some ways, hasn't for Eddie Redmayne, right? You know, But by the same token, state-educated kids should also not be defined by that and held back by that. Um, in my, I got, yes, it's kind of trite. Lots of friends who went to feedback. You know, <laughs> I, I, I don't discriminate. I've got parents who did, right? And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan of theirs. I like people who went to private schools too. Yeah, I do, I do. <laughs> Loads of good friends there. But I, I suppose the point is, that this is not an either or thing. So the fact that 
a state school kid could be 007. That shouldn't, no one should be held back by having gone to state school. Or can be prime minister, no matter how good or bad they are at being prime minister. So we're wrapping up the podcast now. And I have a final few questions for you. Okay. So we're going to end on something lovely uh, and a high note. Okay. So the question that I have for you is, what advice would you give your younger self that our listeners can take away with them? Um, I would probably have told myself at that moment when I was thinking of playing to the crowd rather than playing to my strengths, i.e. worrying too much about what, and they were boys, those boys from the sort of slightly rougher parts who took me down a peg or two, worrying less about what they think and more about what I could do to shape my own future. That's That would be the advice I would have given myself because I got too distracted by that. It's a regret of mine. Mm. And it took me away from being who I really was, which was you know, um, a bit of a nerd, really. I mean, you know, my mum... Be more re- of a nerd. Yeah, be more of a nerd. My mum reminded me, I used, to, I used to quite like reading encyclopedias when I was at home. I used to like reading yeah, encyclopedias. Yeah, I was just fascinated by how the world worked. I had a mini kids one that yeah. I would read. Yeah. It subscribes to this thing. It would come like on a fortnightly basis, each sort of volume. And I loved it. I wish I'd known that kind of thing sooner. Mm. And there wasn't, there wasn't probably the room to to be as true as people can be now because there's other outlets for it, social media and things. So that would be the advice. Stick to who you are. Be proud of who you are. Be confident in it. The world needs people with all the differences going on and don't be defined by what other people think about you. Be defined by what you decide for yourself and what you want to do and don't stop until you get it. I love that. I really love that. And the final question, which is a big one, if you could change one thing about the UK education system, mm. I've put you in power. What are you going to do? Well, I'm not. I'm not massively anti-maths until eighteen. I can certainly see the thinking from from the government in that, but that 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 wouldn't be the that wouldn't be high on my list of priorities. I wouldn't ban fee-paying school either because I also believe in personal choice for people as well. Um, and I, I don't think there is an awful lot of choice of people going to state school. I think that I think the idea of choice in public um, uh, services is is a bit of a myth. Most people go to the school that's nearest to where they live, so there isn't actually a choice. So what would I change? I would, I guess, I'm working backwards from what I don't believe in because I remember in the two thousands as well, the the government at the time wanted to get fifty percent of people into higher education, which seems to just seem a bit arbitrary for me. Uh, yeah, in fact, actually, the, what, what I would change, what I would change is there needs to be more emphasis on finding people's vocation in life. Mm. And if that is vocational qualifications over a university degree, then fantastic, because we need that. I always, University worked for me. It worked for you. We've both gone on to get professional qualifications, and and you, I mean, you work in a professional as a qualified lawyer. I'm not a professional per se, but it worked for me. Mm. Wouldn't have worked for my brother. Wouldn't have worked for lots of people, and that's no bad thing. So what I would what I would do is I think there needs to be more investment in apprenticeships, in vocational qualifications, 
And there needs to be more pride in that and pride in education. The way other societies revere teachers and teaching should be replicated here because it's so fundamentally important. We don't, we don't treat it with enough importance or reverence. And I think whether it's vocations or what teachers do, it needs to be held in higher esteem. Completely agree. Okay, Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to follow you, what is the best channel? I'm in a slightly love-hate relationship with social media at the moment, but I'm on Instagram <laughs> at Matt Barbet, and I am on LinkedIn as well. And I'm a little bit on Twitter, but I'm, uh, I'm a bit, I'm slightly fallen out of love with Twitter, to be honest. Perfect. Thank you so much, Matt. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for watching and listening. If you've enjoyed this, then make sure to like, share, and subscribe. If you want to join the 93% Club, then visit our website at 93%.club or search for us online. Don't forget to follow us on socials. See you next time.